Welcome to the video podcast, Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed, where truth and unity matter. Take the deep dive with highly influential voices in and around the 9-11 truth movement. And welcome everybody to Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. We have some incredible uh, podcast uh, guests coming up specifically today. Mr. Aiden Monahan, 9-11 researcher extraordinaire. We're going to bring him right up. But first, let me introduce you to my wonderful assistant and wife. <laughs> there she is. Gail. <laughs> Hi, Gail. Hey, Richard. Hello, everybody. Hey, you doing good? Yes, I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Yeah, Beautiful day. We're continuing to crank on with some incredible guests. And in this case, uh, yes, oh, my God, Aiden has just dug in deep. He's unveiled mm. uh, Freedom of Information Act requests from the government. Uh, it's 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 amazing. He's researched the capabilities of, of the flight control systems before 9-11. I mean, I'm really looking forward to learning something a whole lot uh, uh, more than I know now. Um, how about you? Yes, me too. That's very exciting. Yes. And by the yes. way, for those of you who don't know, uh, we are unleashed. Uh, what does that mean? That means uh, I founded uh, Architects and Engineers for 9-11 Truth 15 years ago and nurtured it, developed a great staff and... Uh, we have been pumping out the information going around the world, speaking to uh, audiences, uh, what, 700 of them almost, almost, more than 600 radio and TV interviews, uh, worldwide and nationwide tours of our films. We got another film coming up we'll tell you about, 9-11 Crime Scene to Courtroom. All this you can see on our website, Richard Gage 911 dot org. And Gail, what kind of activities do we have coming up? Well, behind us, we have our um, interview. Well, it was a podcast with John Perkins. He's the author of New York Times bestseller, New Confessions of an Economic Hitman. And then coming up, we have Tom Scott Gordon and Jeremy Reese on podcasts. Yep. Jeremy's done a whole lot of research as well. He's going to be an incredible guest. Tom Scott Gordon was the architectural photographer before 9-11 of the Twin Towers, who were looking at galvanic corrosion problems and trying to solve those problems. And he got his head into some interesting spaces relative to the controversy around what eventually happened in, on 9-11. Yes. And then we had a, you had an interview with Matthew Howland of the Political Dark Side podcast. That was just last week. You can see mm -hmm. that also on our website. Did we and post that? Make a note. I think it? we still have to post it. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Make a note. Okay. I'll no, make a note. Important. She All makes right. notes for us. She, she does these kinds of things and a whole <laughs> lot more. Keep us going. Aw. Yes. And coming up, not this weekend, but the following weekend, the weekend after Mother's Day, uh, we are going to be going down to San Diego for the DCG Mastermind event. 
it is a crypto conference, yeah. uh, which is very exciting. Jamar James is hosting it, and uh, he's wanting to bring 9-11 truth into the crypto crypto world. And so, so are we. Exciting. Yes, <laughs> we might we learn something crypto. about crypto there, too, huh? Yeah, I, I really don't know that much about it, so it'll be really. By the way, you can donate to eight, to a Richard Gage nine eleven truth. Excuse me, Richard Gage nine eleven dot org. You can donate crypto now, so uh, be sure to look for that opportunity uh, on our menu there. Many yes. ways to keep us speaking, uh, where we will never stop, but we need your help. Go ahead. That's right. That's right. And then two weeks after that, the last weekend in May, Memorial Weekend, we are going down to San Antonio, Texas for the Advanced Medicine Conference that's hosted by Dr. Rashid Batar. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be really exciting, too. Again, bringing 9-11 truth to the the uh, medical world. So, Well, fa a thousand of them at one yeah, time. I mean, that's a great a speaking opportunity for any 9-11 mm -hmm. truth advocate like us. So we're very excited uh, to, I mean, a thousand doctors. Gail, yeah. are you excited about that? Oh, so excited. Really looking forward. We're going to learn a lot too. So you see, when we go to these conferences, we get the opportunity to bring forth greater uh, numbers of speaking engagements because each of them, many of them, want to bring to their audience uh, our message, too, because 9-11 Truth, well, what really happened at 9-11 is a case study for those who are studying uh, other conspiracies, which turn out to be quite factual, like uh, COVID-19, for instance. So we, uh, we, uh, we go where we're called and we learn what we can also. Yes, that's right. And uh, we do not have a webinar this week. We will be picking it up next week with part one, 9-11, an architect's guide, part one. Yep, we have three World webinars. What? I just said it, which is World Trade Center 7. Yes. Yep. We uh, Three webinars per month. We and, and so the first three weeks of each month, unless we have it to move something like we will be next month, but... We have 9-11 uh, and Architect's Guide Part 1, which is on World Trade Center 7, as Gail mentioned. The next week in May, if we're, uh, you know, well, I think we will be here. Um, yes, 9-11 uh, uh, and Architect's Guide Part 2, that's on the Twin Towers Explosive Destruction. And then uh, Part 3, the third week in May, 9-11 and Architect's Guide, the Twin Towers and Extreme Heat. Now, if you miss these, uh, you can see them for free. They're all on our website. They're all on our YouTube channel, Richard Gage 911 again. Gail, why do we have a second YouTube channel now? Well, because somebody in YouTube world went back to a old podcast that we had done, a, a previous one, and found something that they didn't There's like four about of them. it. Three of them actually now. <laughs> a warning, a first strike, and a second strike. You have yeah, to be careful have to... what your guests say. You have to be careful what you say because YouTube yes. is a major censorship platform. Go yes. ahead. Yes, yes, yes. So, so we're going to try the second one, and we've already got our first warning on that one. So, yeah, <laughs> we just have to be careful. It's... We need to. We are. We are. Um, we do have other platforms that we're using, so we won't. Name them. Completely tied to, um, all right. We are on Odyssey, Brighton Social, BitChute, Minds, Float, Rumble, 
Rockfin, Parlor, Gab TV, Sovereign, and NewTube. We're still yeah. working on Sovereign, but we'll be on it here hopefully pretty soon. Yeah. So we're not we're not staking our reputation on YouTube for sure. Uh, the 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 reason we're there is because there are so many more viewers we can reach with the nine eleven truth there yeah. until we get kicked off altogether. It's a problem. They're even going after nine uh, eleven uh, truth issues in addition to some of the other um, issues that like like uh, just for drawing attention to the COVID issue. Then we. Uh, we we get called for medical misinformation, yeah. and uh, that's uh, pretty soon we'll be we'll be called on nine uh, eleven truth misinformation. Be careful what you're saying right now. Those are some trigger words you just said. So yeah, no, we have to be uh, more careful. You see in the background here at the bottom nine eleven con the Pentagon. This is the quarterly conference that we have. Uh, the Pentagon was March nineteenth. You can see the whole conference ten hours. Um, uh, with uh, major researchers in the 9-11 truth movement on the Pentagon. Coming up is the uh, on July 16th, Saturday, is 9-11-Con uh, Shanksville. We're looking for our, our best researchers uh, on the Shanksville topic uh, as we speak. So join us. Anything else, Gail? Oh, that's about it. Everybody okay. <laughs> well, guess what? Uh, we've got uh, an amazing... Uh, guest with us today, Aiden Monahan. Mm -hmm. uh, were the planes remotely guided on 9-11? He's a researcher of oh, more than 15 years. He brings the rubber to the road. Electrical engineer is what he is. He tracks down the answers to the questions that most of us wouldn't even think to ask. Like, what were the capabilities of the GPS-guided autopilot flight control systems on the Boeing 757-767s, their navigation prior to 9-11? How about its performance on 9-11, the GPS uh, systems? This is really important. What was the capability to re remotely deliver flight plan waypoints to the aircraft, its flight management systems, before 9-11? And what was the history of remote backdoor accessibility to Boeing flight control computers? What was the significance of the 9-11 flight transponder activity of the hijacked aircraft on 9-11? What is the significance of the United Airlines Flight 175's observed and measured performance prior to impacting World Trade Center 2? What is the significance of the extreme and low visibility weather the day before 9-11? on the alleged hijackers hoped for outcome. Is the publicly released American Airlines Flight 77 flight data recorder an accurate record of the flight that hit the Pentagon? This is a huge issue. What was the flying capability of the alleged hijackers you know, themselves? Could they have flown the flight profiles that were flown on 9-11? Aiden Monahan is a tireless 9-11 researcher. He has a degree in electrical engineering and had a degree in electrostatics, a career, not a degree. Uh, he's been conducting data collection from the government via the Freedom of Information Act requests that have yielded the 9-11 truth community to the 9-11 truth community, a treasure trove of valuable data proving the official narrative of 9-11 can't possibly 
be true. Ladies and gentlemen, let's say hi to Aiden Monahan, who is here, though you won't see his lovely face um, <laughs> due to some uh, issues that we had trying to get his photograph up. Hi, Aiden. Um, certainly, there was a DVD about circa 2005. I can't recall the name. A, a Dave Von Kleist produced a documentary about the Pentagon discrepancies and contained also uh, anomalies, anomalous information about the World Trade Center collapses and reports of bombs, explosions, etc. That was my first uh, indication that perhaps along with the official story, and I proceeded from there, and it's been a never-ending journey since. Wonderful. Well, um, let's let's talk about your uh, your earlier research. Tell us all about it, and uh, I'll be quiet, and we'll deal with the lag uh, that way. I began to follow the work of uh, Kevin Ryan, Stephen Jones, others. Regard, regarding the uh, anomalous World Trade Center destruction evidence, the um, discovered evidence for possibility of thermite use that day at the buildings. And then I noticed that there was some uh, lacking research in the government records. I began to uh, make FOIA requests of various agencies regarding various outstanding issues regarding the whole 9-11 event from different agencies. Uh, as well, I noticed that there was a, uh, a large uh, vacancy of uh, information regarding the flights and realizing that the instructions were probably or very possibly, um, um, I realized that therefore the flights themselves must have been uh, potentially sabotaged, much as the buildings were in a related way, and began looking for ways that this may have unfolded. And I, circa 2001, the capabilities and so on, and uh, came across uh, a lot of uh, discrepancies, shall we say, uh, coincidences, um, and so on, and seemed to support that perhaps the planes could have been, revolved, been involved in the uh, events themselves in some kind of uh, unreported remote way, shall we say. Okay, well, let's uh, walk through them one by one. Take them uh, in the order that you've got. What we're showing our audience um, is the, uh, the table of contents of declassifying 9-11, uh, the book that you wrote. Let's, uh, where do you want to start here? Well, I, be, I began to investigate the navigational aid, the radio frequency navigational aid capability. Uh, in the years leading up to 9-11, about five years prior, the uh, federal government, private industry were re heavily R&Ding, researching and developing the uh, navigational aid capability for GPS in the commercial aviation uh, sector. Uh, these uh, research and development tests involved Boeing 757s and 767s, coincidentally or not, just like those planes that were used on 9-11. And they were producing navigational 
accuracy capabilities of down to three meters, which was unprecedented in the uh, US aviation airspace up to that point, the pre previous generation navigational aids did not provide that kind of accuracy at all, not even close, except on approach to runways uh, during landing procedures. But uh, this research and development um, was very intensive in the five years before 9-11 and then immediately thereafter the event uh, ceased and there was no longer any, and I found that timing uh, rather odd, perhaps indicative of something. And certainly, uh, yeah, and what I found was that in addition to the, the, uh, the navigational aid accuracies that were uh, being researched and, and developed and uh, attained, as well, there was uh, radio frequency technology being developed that allowed, for example, the remote transmission of entire fl electronic flight plans uh, delivered to and installed into the flight control computer systems of these Boeing 757s and 767s. This uh, capability was developed and achieved uh, right up to and before 9-11, uh, uh, which I found remarkable um, as well. Uh, the, the systems that supported this capability uh, were announced in the media as being uh, installed into these aircraft uh, circa 1998, 1999, about two years, three years before 9-11. So essentially the GPS capabilities the radio frequency communication capabilities uh, needed for, let's say, uh, covert activity were already in place on the day of 9-11 in these aircraft. Uh, the American United Airlines fleets contained these avionics packages that were uh, produced by Honeywell, Rockwell Collins, and others. Uh, so it, it does seem to open up some potential uh, foul play opportunities, shall we say, to put it kindly. In ongoing research, I found that, for example, uh, a very uh, suspect and curious, um, and I always say, uh, the GPS constellation daily broadcasts what is known as a GPS almanac file, for example. And that almanac file contains all kinds of uh, performance for the GPS constellation and can be in GPS uh, uh, planning And what I found was going back, so for example, example, with that data file, with GPS planning software, one can take a look back at previous uh, GPS service quality for particular coordinate locations. And so with that Almanac file in the software, I went back to September 11, 2001, to the coordinates, for example, of the World Trade Center towers themselves the Pentagon, and what the data software or what the software is, is uh, 
a look at the performance of the GPS service throughout the day on 9-11 from a particular coordinate location. And what I found was, it, for example, the, the peak of superior service for September 11 from the coordinates of the World Trade Center, for example, um, was peak during the attacks themselves. Uh, really? which to me uh, perhaps indicated some foreknowledge of some party, possibly. It certainly dovetails with some uh, theories, shall we say, uh, pursuant to the topic. And uh, I just found that a, re a remarkable coincidence. Um, and the, the, the same is true as well for the, uh, the Pentagon itself during its at uh, attack period. The service of the GPS was at its peak during the hours or minutes of the attack for that entire day of September 11th. Uh, certainly, and um, pursuant to the accuracy that I was describing earlier, uh, what most people may or may not know is commercial airline runways, for example, uh, speaking the potential capability of, let's say, covert remote control of these aircraft by some party. Uh, for example, the World Trade Center towers themselves were 208 feet wide. Commercial airline runways at commercial airports are as narrow as only 150 feet. So the accuracy capabilities needed for, let's say, some, some covert remote activity pursuant to the plans and the attacks themselves certainly uh, was supported by the technology, it appears. Uh, once again, the accuracy within the uh, airspace, the three-dimensional airspace over the U.S. with the onset of the GPS service was as, was as low as three meters horizontally and vertically. The GPS itself, uh, coincidentally or not, only became available to the user segment about a year before 9-11. So some interesting timing there. Uh, also as well, it's described in the research and development literature published by Stanford, for example, the capability of descending turns and the uh, capability of supporting these uh, functions under autopilot control with under the uh, GPS guys, uh, older generation navigation, aids did not support this capability. It was supported with the GPS, however. It's described in the literature of Stanford University, for example. And what you see as well in at least two of the aircraft attacks, United 175 and the Pentagon, are aircraft impacts with buildings following the performance of descending turns, the kind that were described in the Stanford literature, for example. Uh, what seems to be visual confirmation of this is one video of UAE 75 hitting World Trade Center 2. There were a number of them recorded that day, but one in particular records the final eight seconds of 13 seconds of flight for 175 as it's approaching World Trade Center 2. And what we can see from this video is the aircraft enters the top of the frame, wings level, disappears behind a smoke cloud, reappears, settled into a 20-degree bank angle, 
with this information, the bank angle information and the published ground speed for the aircraft in some of the NIST reports, with just those data points alone and using trigonometric calculations, we can derive some other uh, potential data, some outcome data, for example. And see, basically, long story short, uh, without diving too deep into the math that's provided in the one paper you're looking at now, it is that it appears that United 175 was up to hit World Trade Center or two from a mile and a half distant. And this appears to be um, a remarkable achievement for any human pilot, much less the amateurs alleged to have carried out the attacks that um, there was at the end of UA-175's flight during the final three seconds, a final twist, we say, from 20 degrees of bank to 38 degrees, just three seconds before the impact with the bank. We're using this trigonometry I earlier. We can uh, derive that that final bank was not necessary for, for impact with the building. It only provided about 20 feet of additional uh, lateral movement to the left toward the center of the target by only about 20 feet. But what it did provide for the observer is an impression of active human control as the eyes of the world were probably all watching at that point. They the media noted in many accounts this final banking turn prior to impact. And as I said, what it did provide for the observer is some impression that there was active human control of the aircraft. And it was described in some media accounts as some last second desperate attempt by the hijackers to obtain impact with the building. But as I said, the, calculation, the calculations seem to show that the plane was already on target with the World Trade Center Tower 2, about a mile and a half distant. And also what this turn necessarily needed to account for to obtain its accuracy was the 11 mile per hour crosswind that it was would necessarily had to contend with. And without doing so properly, this 11 mile per hour crosswind had the potential to push the aircraft off target by about a hundred feet. So hmm. this turn, this 20 degree bank angle turn, necessarily had incorporated into it the fact that there was this crosswind present. And additionally, 
moving at 800 feet per second as this airplane was, were the aircraft to have started this turn a second sooner or later than observed necessarily means that the aircraft would miss the building by 800 feet while the second. So the paper you're observing now, all of the math described is contained therein and is, is, is available for readers should they decide to take a look at it. And so we have what appears to be with the availability of the technology, the systems, the GPS, and so on, the potential for what we suspect. And the paper you're reviewing now, I believe, addresses uh, confirmation, visual, observable confirmation uh, for the uh, use of these systems in the attacks, whether these were by what party, we don't know. Someday, maybe we shall, but the, uh, the systems seem to have been in use that day, in my humble opinion, having been an observer of all of this information for the last years that I have. What has been described uh, in recent years by IT security uh, parties, for example, in a recent IT security invention, I think, convention rather, uh, around 2015, I believe, or so, was the uh, remote backdoor so-called capability of entry into a flight control computer with the use of a simple Android smartphone. Um, th this got the attention of the aviation security industry. There was an interview by the founder of Pilots for 9-11 Truth, an interview with an avionics technician by the name of, I believe, Wayne Anderson, uh, who described in an event during the late 1990s with the airline he was with uh, what appeared to be the use of a radio frequency backdoor into a flight control computer uh, with through the use of a simple laptop computer. And this event was described in detail during a one hour interview that I believe is available at the website of... Uh, whistleblower pilot Dan Hanley retired with United Airlines. He's uh, also active. Certainly, yeah, he's, he's also active in the research and accountability uh, movement regarding the, the, these events. And uh, so at his website can be found a copy of the interview I, I, I'm describing. I forgot the airline the avionics tech was with. It was a smaller regional carrier, but the existence of what appeared to be a backdoor capability into these flight control computers through the simple use of a laptop. UA-175, American 11, into one, uh, into, uh, one World Trade Center, two World Trade Center. The floors that were struck and subsequently burned were also the only floors for which renovations had been completed inside of the towers up to that point, there had been major renovation projects going on in the one to two years prior to 9-11, uh, uh, pursuant to fireproofing. And according to the data published in the NIST reports regarding the building collapses, researcher Kevin Ryan, for example, found that the floors, that, the only floors that had been completed uh, 
renovations for which had been completed were also those only floors that had been struck by the aircraft and subsequently burned, which speaks to perhaps and certainly dovetails with the idea that there was some unreported relationship between the aircraft uh, impacts and the subsequent building destructions. Uh, yes, uh, regarding the slide you're viewing now, in recent uh, times uh, doing some research, I noted that the official story contends that the, air, the uh, hijackers, the accused, purchased their tickets in the last week of August. Yes, the accused hijackers are alleged to have purchased their tickets for the flights during the last week of August of 2001, about two and a half to three weeks, perhaps, before the event. And what you find in doing research is just hours before the 9-11 attacks on September 10th, the weather was such that visual flight. Sorry, I don't know what the problem was. I yeah. was right next to my computer trying to talk and it didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, but we're good now. Uh, Gail, go ahead and ask Aiden. The, I'll ask uh, the first question. question. Yes, I'll go back to the first question. Eyewitnesses reported cargo gray planes smashing the official story, but how did they switch the planes on a day when they were playing war games? Lucky for Osama? I think the question is pursuant to uh, the Operation Northwood scenario that uh, envisioned uh, plane swapping. I don't think this is the case in the 9-11 uh, events. Uh, I don't think there was a need for so-called plane swapping. I think any uh, covert technology abuse uh, was uh, uh, available, possible, with the aircraft that were involved. The systems uh, needed to support the kind of covert abuse that we suspect. I, they were already contained within the the United and American commercial aircraft that were uh, involved in the events that day. So I, I don't think that there was any need for the kind of plane swapping envisioned by the Operation Northwoods of uh, 1962 that was uh, uh, apparently alluded to in the question. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Next question. Considering the speed and maneuverability of Flight 175, do you think it was absolutely necessary to be piloted by a computer? I think the flight profile observed necessitates the uh, consideration of uh, computer-controlled flight. For example, were a human pilot uh, controlling United 175, for example, uh, during the type of flight profile observed, uh, how shall I say this? One would expect to see some kind of wobbling as the plane approached the building, sort of uh, a human pilot needing to make adjustments to assure alignment with the target as it approached. That's not uh, evident in the video. What we see in the video is a plane that is aligned uh, with flight profile uh, that resulted in impact with the building a mile and a half out. Um, so a mile and a half amateur, out. Amateur pilots, one would expect to see a lot of wobbling and uh, attempted alignment of the aircraft with the target. And that's just not seen in any of the videos. Well, we see it immediately prior to the impact of world at World Trade Center 2. So explain. Actually, uh, there, there's no wobbling that is evident in, in White 175's flight uh, toward 
Trade Center too. Uh, it's a very steady uh, bank 20 degree angle for about five seconds uh, into the target. Mm -hmm. okay. Only at the very end do we see a, a, an additional 18 degrees of bank applied to the turn. But as I mentioned, uh, the calculations uh, seem to indicate that that turn wasn't necessary for impact. And I suspect that there was uh, another purpose for that turn. Uh, I alluded to a, uh, an impression created of human pilot control. Hmm. It was alluded to in many of the media reports subsequent to the attacks, what was suspected to be a, some last second desperate attempt by the accused hijacker pilots of trying to assure impact with uh, Trade Center 2. But it all happened too fast to be human? I mean, I think a lot of luck would need to have been involved for uh, human control of what was observed. Uh -huh. um, certainly not the amateurs uh, alleged by the official accounts. Uh, the, the, the flight profile of United 175 was outstanding in, in a number of aspects. The, the timings of these turns, the bank angles. See, what was, what was needed for 175 to do what it did was the simultaneous uh, coordination of a couple of factors. First, the 20-degree bank angle that was chosen. And second, the timing of that bank angle. As I said, it were, were that bank angle applied a second sooner or later than observed, the plane necessarily misses the building. Mm. Uh, conversely, uh, if an incorrect bank angle were applied at the time observed, the plane also necessarily misses. If, it, if a 15-degree bank angle were chosen or a 25-degree bank angle were chosen, the plane also necessarily misses mm. the target. So you're looking at the simultaneous coordination of several factors, including the accounting of a crosswind that had the capability of pushing the plane off target by 100 feet at 11 miles per hour. The crosswind was evident in the streaming smoke from Trade Center 1 mm -hmm. that we all recall from the videos and images that day. Yes. Well, thank you. Gail? All right. Flight 175 almost collided with two other planes during flight and almost it missed the South Tower. If it was remote control, can you explain that? Yes. Uh, pursuant to the flight transponders, three of the four flights had flight transponders whose uh, broadcasts ended and were no longer visible to the air traffic controllers. What I found in research was the capability of military aircraft, for example, to essentially um, jam transponder broadcasts by spoofing a given transponders uh, in proximity of air traffic control. Um, oh, boy, how do I say this? I'm trying to summarize something very technical. Um, basically, the three of four transponders that stopped broadcasting implied, created an impression for the observer that there were cockpit breaches by the accused and that they manually went in there, et cetera, turned off the transponders. But one of those aircraft continued to broadcast, even though it was an incorrect code. And that was United 175. And 
what that in effect did was facilitate its impact with Trade Center 2 by activating what were known as the traffic collision avoidance systems of nearby aircraft that were alluded to in the question, the uh, the uh, reported near impacts. And what United 175's uh, continually operating transponder did was activate those systems on those other aircraft to warn of the uh, potential for mid-air collision and allow those pilots of those aircraft to redirect to avoid collision with 175 as an approach trade center too. So oddly enough, of all the aircraft that continued to broadcast its transponder signal to air traffic control 175, uh, it in fact facilitated its subsequent impact with Trade Center 2. And it was the only plane of the four that were ever in danger of mid-air collisions with other aircraft. Fascinating. Uh, now, uh, can uh, any pilot during in those days just simply turn off the transponder at his will? I mean, why would that even be uh, a, a capability in the plane? Nobody wants the transponder off, right? Has that been studied? Right. Certainly. Uh, the uh, There is primary radar and there's secondary radar. And secondary radar is what covers the transponder broadcasts, which provide altitude, heading, and so on, and flight identification. But once the transponders were no longer broadcasting for three of the four, three of the four flights, they nevertheless were still able to track these flights on the primary radar. Why were so, they capable of turning off the transponder? I mean, if I was designing a transponder, I would not uh, allow uh, anybody, at least of all hijackers, to turn it off. Right. Subsequent, or, uh, subsequent to 9-11, those, those questions were raised by authorities why there is an ability to allow uh deactivation of transponders mid-flight, but uh, uh, nevertheless, nothing was gained by the accused by turning off these transponders. Oh, But it does create the impression for the observer that there were cockpit breaches by the accused and that some unauthorized activity was taking place there. But as I said, uh, I found in research that such transponder broadcasts can be jammed by military aircraft. Uh, each transponder in the civil airspace uh, has a unique identifier code contained in its broadcast. And military aircraft, I have found, can spoof this identification information and essentially cause the transponder information to disappear from air traffic control screens, as happened on 9-11. So, the, the loss of these signals does not necessarily imply that they were manually deactivated. There were other means by which this information could have been lost to the air traffic controllers as happened. Gotcha. Thank you, Gail. All right. Could Flight 175 have handled the air pressure at such high speeds and low atmosphere, or do you think it was a military plane painted to look like Flight 175? Yes, I've heard this question raised. It's a valid question. I know of at least one other aircraft uh, incident uh, for which uh, extreme speeds uh, resulted in the destruction of the aircraft. 
uh, it was a 1999 Egypt Air flight that uh, nosedived into the ocean. And I think before impact with the ocean began to uh, break up, so to speak, uh, I did a FOIA request of the Beats, the uh, Bureau of Transportation Statistics to try to see some of the flight history of the 9-11 aircraft uh, leading up to 9-11. What I found was uh, there were no records available for the entire year period for all of the aircraft, uh, which kind of makes one wonder where were these planes in that case if they weren't performing their job for the airlines, uh, where were they? why is there no such information for these uh, planes? And uh, I found that also during the research and development period for the GPS technology and, and, and avionics packages, uh, during the R&D uh, events, aircraft from airlines and uh, delivery services like UPS and FedEx were used during these tests and I occasionally find myself wondering, you know, were, were these 9-11 aircraft themselves utilized during any of these research and development activities hmm. uh, of the uh, GPS service and avionics uh, technology? Repeat the, uh, the the issue that you began to describe earlier uh, about the capability of, of the GPS system in, in the weeks and months prior to 9-11 and what happened uh, after 9-11 with regard to that research and capability? Yes, they were looking for uh, the aviation industry for uh, future generation uh, navigational aids and technology and so on. And there was a research and development period from the mid-90s up until about 9-11. Uh, repeated test flights. Uh, they uh, relied upon United Parcel Service 757s, 767s, FedEx planes, United Airlines planes that I I found in at least one instance, uh, NASA aircraft, and all of that research and development uh, ended just before 9-11. Interestingly. They didn't need to do it anymore because they possibly had a specific purpose for it, which had been completed? I I occasionally wonder. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Um, well, what was the capability of the GPS uh, guided system and when did it come online? Uh, it came on, uh, the, the, uh, it involves several aspects and the hardware, for example, the avionics packages, uh, according to media reports, were scheduled for installation into the 757-767 planes of these airline fleets by the late 90s, uh, 1998, 1999. So by 2001, 9-11, these uh, avionics packages were already in the aircraft and the future functions for which they uh, were to support didn't officially come online until 2003, but the GPS service and the avionics technology was already there, so to speak. The, the, The GPS had been turned on in May of 2000 the avionics systems were present in the planes by at least 1999. So there was an opportunity for some unreported covert abuse. Were that the interests of certain parties, let's say. 
Fascinating. Now, you've documented this in in your work. Uh, is that in 9-11 Declassified? Uh, yes, uh, in de Declassifying 9-11, uh, the book's divided into generally two parts. Uh, uh, one part addressing all of the various FOIA requests of various agencies, and the second part addresses all of the aviation technology that we're addressing uh, here at the interview today. Okay, great. I'll put that back up on the screen. Uh, and I'll post it um, after we're done here uh, on the on the website and uh, the other links, because uh, I, 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 I didn't get that done. Um, very important uh, work that you've done. Go ahead, Gail. Another question. All right. Next question. How did Zanyat Bazant have a paper already explaining the Twin Tower collapses only two days after 9-11, when it took Professor Holsey years to do a proper study of Building 7. Um, do you have uh, thoughts on that? I can I can go f for it after you do. Uh, it, this seems to speak of the uh, building investigations. Um, yeah. I'm not as well-versed in that topic. Um, I, I may defer to you, Richards. That's a field of expertise for you. Okay. Um, what we know is that Zdenek Bazant of Chicago Northwestern University, um, within two days after 9-11, submitted an extremely detailed uh, paper. And uh, we go through this in some detail on our webinar, uh, which is 9-11 and Architect's Guide Part 2. And uh, in his paper, which is so obscure that most engineers couldn't... Uh, uh, dissect it and to, to find out what it was actually saying was finally decoded by uh, engineers like uh, Tony Zambodi, who determined that his formulas were correct in, that is to say, uh, showing in, in his attempt uh, to falsely show that the upper section of the South Tower, both towers, essentially uh, drove the rest of the building down to the ground and then destroyed itself. While the formulas were correct, the data was uh, completely manipulated, uh, rigged uh, at least 12 to 1 in favor of a collapse. Uh, the, the weight of the above section was magnified two or three times. The capability of the intact columns below were decreased uh, three or four times. Uh, and on and on. And so there's been a pa two papers published, well, submitted, but not published by the American Society of Civil Engineers for the last six years uh, or so. The, the, this has been an ethics violation. And so I think it was two or three years ago, there, Tony Zambodi and his uh, colleagues uh, challenged this with the ASCE. Well, finally, the other day, they relented, and uh, in, in this ethics violation, <laughs> they're going to re-review these papers, which challenge the Zdenek Bazant paper, uh, and, and because they had previously said that, well, it was out of scope, which is why we can't publish it or won't publish it. Uh, well, it's not out of scope to challenge somebody's. Uh, fraudulent paper uh, that's been previously published. So this is a very good turn of events in the academic community. Anyway, 
Gail, there must be another question. Yes, there is. There's more. Do airline pilots have a right to know if the uninterruptible autopilot technology is installed on the aircraft they are flying? Oh. I'm sorry. I missed part of that question. Sorry. Go ahead. I'm going to put the, the phone closer to the speaker. There you go. Do airline pilots have a right to know if the uninterruptible autopilot technology is installed on the aircraft they are flying? Uh, do, do pilots have a right to know, I believe is the question. Yeah. Yes. And, and also more to the point, um, uh, is it policy uh, that they do know? And can we ask pilots if they know that there's an uninterruptible pilot guided system uh, on their planes these days. Well, not these days, but on 2001 and before. Well, uh, Boeing applied for the patent for these systems only subsequent to 9-11. So um, whether this uh, capability is in play today, uh, we don't know. They, they've offered no comment on it. Uh, federal regulators have offered no comment on it. We only know that Boeing has applied for the patent for such systems, and this was only subsequent to 9-11, immediately thereafter. So, uh, but as I mentioned earlier, uh, there was a, uh, a report by an avionics tech uh, of a, 19, late, a late 90s uh, event that demonstrated uh, by these technicians uh, the existence of uh, backdoor access into these flight control computers, which may speak to the capability of the uninterruptible autopilot uh, technology alluded to in these patents and by the question. Mm -hmm. Thank you. All right. And the next question is similar about um, the uninterruptible autopilot technology. Do airline pilots get any training with respect to the uninterruptible autopilot technology? Uh, as mentioned, uh, it, it apparently is not in any official use. So I, I would I would venture to say no, uh, although I, I cannot say this for certain, but to my knowledge, uh, being a, a, a reviewer of uh, news and information uh, related to the industry as a, as a casual observer, I'm not aware of uh, this technology being in any official use. So therefore, I would venture to say that no pilots uh, uh, have no awareness or any training uh, related thereto. Okay. All righty. Have you consulted with Dwayne Dietz regarding your research? He presented this info about 10 years ago. His, he's an ex-research engineer from NASA. Uh, I've, never I've never conferred with him personally. Uh, he left a positive review at Amazon, for example, uh, for my book. That's about the extent of uh, my interactions with uh, Dwayne. But I am aware of his work, and um, we, we seem to agree on, on some some aspects of the material addressed here today. And interestingly, uh, Dwayne, who's from the San Diego area, will be having lunch with him in a couple of weeks. Um, he, um, as we speak there at the cryptocurrency conference, he will be um, on our show talking about some new research he's done, Aiden. And that involves uh, the, 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 the appearance and... Uh, 
evidence he's 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 leaning toward that the the flights and certainly the flight on to the pentagon uh was uh clearly and provably uh pre-programmed not that it was remotely controlled but a pre-programmed uh flight including the 360 degree turn uh that it took prior to hitting the pentagon and he has reasons uh, that it needed to do that turn. So we're, we're, all, we're all looking very much forward to uh, that. Now, having said that, to, to that podcast, uh, Ken Jenkins has a, a different uh, feel. For instance, uh, he's done a film on Flight 93, uh, taking the flight uh, cockpit recorder and, uh, and, and simultaneously with an animation of the flight uh which uh uh where is is shown together with not only the flight cockpit re data recorder but the cockpit voice recorder as well uh and it's 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 fascinating and and his conclusion is that there were hijackers um of the muslim variety uh in charge or in control of the plane so, you know, we're bringing everybody uh, who has done research to the fore so that we can get a, a broad variety of, of, uh, of opinions and analysis, and then they can uh, challenge each other at our conference, which in this case, Flight 93, of course, is at Shanksville. And, um, and he'll have the opportunity to present there on July 16th and anybody else who... Um, uh, presents evidence and meets our criteria for for uh, uh, civility and so forth because uh, there's a few out there that don't uh will be invited if I may, pursuant to that topic um i wanted to mention also uh, under foia i obtained a copy of the flight 77 flight data recorder download data file and what i found was that the time stamp for that record contained therein uh, was such that it indicates that the file itself was produced four hours before the flight data recorder itself was recovered, reportedly from the Pentagon, which is comparable to me to finding a murder weapon before the murder actually occurs. Also, the 9-11 flight data recorders that were recovered, uh, flight 93, flight 77, uh, in the previous 25 years of NTSB record, uh, accident record, or accident report publishing were the only ones that didn't have serial numbers attributed to these devices. Now, inventory control serial numbers. Wow. And you've, you've documented this in declassifying 9-11? Uh, correct. Oh, well, that's fascinating. So, um, do you, uh, there's a specific chapter in, in that document um, we can go to? Uh, which which document are we looking at today? De declassifying 9-11. Um, uh, I want to refer people to a specific chapter because that's that's a claim I hadn't heard before. Yeah, the, the book's divided into it's, it's the second it's the second section of the book, and then there are divisions of that section. And one of those, I think, you, you will find the information I referred to. And uh, pursuant to that info. Huh? And the, the Jenkins matter you addressed, uh, 
I know that there are certain factions who place a lot of faith in the flight data recorder information because they believe that the data points uh, indicated therein uh, conform to on-scene physical crash scene evidence at the Pentagon, for example. But borrowing from the phrase that uh, correlation does not necessarily indicate causation, I contend that nevertheless, this is simply an electronic record, an alleged record of events, and one that cannot, whose authentic, authenticity cannot be corroborated in any reliable way, in my humble opinion. It's simply an allegation in an electronic form. It's simply data, binary ones and zeros, uh, no indication of authenticity. However, uh, much it may conform to certain other evidence. It's nevertheless just an, an alleged record, in my opinion, by the authorities. Okay, thank you. And and people can uh, Google uh, Aiden Monahan declassifying 9-11, a between-the-lines and behind-the-scenes look at the September 11th attacks. Monahan, M-O-N-A-G-H-A-N. Gail, back to you. Yes. All right. Next question. Was it CGI and no planes involved? Uh, yeah, certain, certainly not. I, uh, With respect to uh, events like this, I, for some reason, I guess some parties automatically like to defer to the most extreme possibilities, unlikely possibilities. Um I, I'm, not, I'm not sure how that ever got started, the uh, potential for CGI uh, deployment. Uh, I, it's, it's, it's one of those areas I just don't go, so to speak. Um, the, the, the technology to uh, carry out what was, what was observed that day was already in place and didn't require any uh, video trickery or fakery or deception. You know, what we saw is in all likelihood what happened. So I I tend not to go there, so to speak, uh, with respect to uh, such uh, questions, I guess. Well, there's plenty of evidence to suggest that a plane did hit uh, each of the towers. And and um, uh, we, I have documented this, uh, begun to, and have, uh, there's 40 videos not just one or two that show these planes hitting the towers and they're not all faked. Maybe some of them are faked. Uh, I I'm not denying that. That's not the point though. The point is, did the planes hit the towers? There's 40 videos showing that they did not just the ones that are claimed to be faked, which have also been debunked. There's, there's a, there's a wheel of a landing gear uh, from the, one of the planes that hit one of the towers that, went right into the gap between the 14-inch square steel tube perimeter columns, knocking that wall section of three columns out of the towers, landing together because the wheel is wedged in that gap on the ground uh, in front of, uh, uh, I believe it's a, a small church uh, on, on the street down below. There's also... For some reason, FBI agents carrying a 
an aileron from the plane uh, away uh, uh, in, in the early uh, minutes or hours after the, the flight. Um, there, there's plenty of yeah. evidence like that. Oh, sorry, Richard. Uh for example, thousands of people saw United 175 hit Trade Center 2, and I'm not aware of one account that alleges an explosion without an aircraft impact. What do you mean? Uh, oh, you mean witnesses that saw the explosion but not the aircraft impact. Well, if you heard uh, the explosion and you looked up, you wouldn't see the aircraft in, in their defense. Um so there's probably several witnesses who actually saw an explosion after uh, the impact, uh, I'm guessing. I'm pretty sure. Well, yeah, yeah. in certain circumstances, there were probably a, a small handful who may have only witnessed what you described. But in, in the vast majority of cases, the accounts of eyewitnesses on scene all report a real aircraft going into a real building and absent any video fakery and thus no need for such. And you can also uh, see in the videos, uh, m many people hearing something above them, looking up and then trailing the aircraft into the building. Um, that's pretty indicative that there was a plane and 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 not some kind of hologram with a super incredible speaker system. Yeah, you know, over the years I've noted for some reason uh, certain parties want to automatically defer to the most extreme possibilities such as uh, directed energy weapons, uh, CGI, mini nukes, so to speak. I, they've been referred to. Uh, none of this extreme... Uh, these extreme scenarios are are necessary, in my opinion. I I think there are more simple explanations for all of the things that unfolded that day. Mm -hmm. Okay, back to you, Gail. All right. <clears throat> Excuse me. Have you heard of FPV, first person view remote control that uses a camera on board the craft that is remotely controlled? The controller can see what is in front of the craft that is controlled. I, I understand what is described. Um, again, I, I go back to the flight profile observed in the one video addressed in my paper where we see that United 175 appears to be aligned with a flight profile that assures impact from a mile and a half distant. So even if such technology were in play, um, it still would seem to require some uh, wobbling, shall we say, by a human controller to assure alignment with the target as the plane approached. Instead, what we see is uh, an alignment with the target a mile and a half out, which indicates to me of uh, navigational aid involvement and the only such nav aids that could support that kind of performance was the GPS that had just come online with the technology circa 2001. Mm -hmm. Very telling. Gail? All right. Could the transponder be turned off remotely? Well, that's an interesting question. Yes, that is an interesting question. It's, it's one I've uh, tried. I, I've been seeking answers to. Uh, the available literature doesn't seem to address it 
the, 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 the literature I've covered so far. But as I mentioned, um, there is the capability for jamming transponder broadcasts, and that capability is only supported by military aircraft. Uh, as we know, on 9-11, there were war games underway. There was a uh, radio communications uh, flight platform airborne that day, the E-4B aircraft. Uh, that may open up possibilities. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm speculating at this point. But uh, there may be some remote capability for uh, deactivating transponder broadcasts that I'm not aware of. I'm still looking. But I do know of uh, the jamming potential and causing a flight transponder data return to drop from the air traffic controller screens as happened uh, with three of the four planes on 9-11. Excellent. Gail. All righty. Have you researched whether the Langley Air Force Base F-16s were deliberately sent out to sea or was it really standard operating procedures? Yeah, I'm not as expert as other individuals on this matter, but it does seem that uh, there were uh, the planes were unnecessarily redirected in other places uh, and delayed engaging uh, the flights, therefore. Uh, but I, I'm not as well versed on such topics as other researchers are, for example. I know David Griffin's books uh, dive into this uh matter extensively in some of those and i'd refer the questioner to uh, that material great all right where did the aircrafts allegedly take off i don't know which aircraft they're referring to but you <laughs> want to go go for all of them uh, from I, I believe uh you uh, american 11 and united 175 took off from boston i believe uh 77 took off from dulles and I believe Flight 93 took off from Newark, New Jersey, if I'm not mistaken. That's what I recall, too, for 93. Okay. How many aerobatic pilots, or for that matter, normal 757 pilots, have you talked to concerning how difficult it would be for a beginner to accomplish such aerobatic maneuvers? Yeah, in recent times, I've been conferring with uh, retired United pilot Dan Hanley, and he's essentially on record saying that the flight profile for Flight 77 uh, pursuant to impact with the Pentagon would have been beyond his capability. And I've heard of other pilots uh, retired who alleged the same. Uh, it, was, it, was a, it was a very tight, uh, steeply descending turn that 77 performed just prior to impact. And... Uh, it does uh, conform. It does dovetail with the uh, flight the kinds of flight profiles supported by the GPS technology that we've been discussing here today, uh, specifically addressed by the Stanford Research and Development Literature, uh, supporting descending constant radius turns specifically. And that's more or less what you see with 77. It's not a constant radius turn. There are some variations in the circular flight, but nevertheless, it is essentially a descending turn that, uh, as I mentioned, is uh, was beyond the capability of uh, the, the two pilots I mentioned. Hmm. All right. 
Do you know if any of the planes used in the attacks were previously in maintenance in the days or weeks before they were used in the attacks? Were the planes altered before that day? Yes, I've tried to find answers to that. I, uh, I made the request of the, B, uh, the uh, Bureau of Transportation Statistics for flight activity in the year prior to 9-11, for which there was none provided. Uh, I, I sued the FBI in federal court trying to get all of the airline records for these aircraft. Uh, the, the FBI seized all of this information subsequent to 9-11 and essentially put it under lock and key. And I got as far as the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, three-judge panel, uh, two ruled against me, one in favor. Nevertheless, I, I lost and failed in my attempt to get such records. I would like to see that those aircraft records. I think they could shed some light on the, the question and some other matters as well. But I've exhausted all my op opportunities to get this information under the FOIA. So that's going to have to be uh, left up to some other party. Well, great job going after it there, uh, Aiden. I mean, that takes funds. I mean, you have to hire an attorney. I mean, how, how was all that handled? And how many FOIA requests have you done? Yeah, uh, in the federal court system, uh, a litigant has two opportunities. Um, I wasn't aware of any attorneys who were available to help me in my first try. Halfway into my second try, I've, I found an attorney. But by that time, the FBI lawyers, uh, using uh, relying on some gamesmanship, uh, induced me into committing some procedural errors that were enough to cause my litigation to fail ultimately, oh. despite my uh, eventual recruitment of, of a good FOIA attorney. <clears throat> you had to pay for that yourself? Uh, well, uh, he, he volunteered to pay for his attorney. Uh, otherwise, I was simply uh, obliged to, to pay for the filing fees wow. in each case. That's fantastic. Which, you got some help. Which there. came to which came to uh, hundreds of dollars in each case. Oh. How many uh FOIA requests have you submitted altogether? Oh, dozens. I mean so many agencies, FBI, FAA, NTSB, BTS, CIA, um others, NIST. Uh, yeah, many with NIST. I've I've gotten a bunch of records from NIST. But most of them are just uh, useless, essentially. Uh, they really aren't shedding any light on anything. Uh, but the government is good at that. You know, they're, they're good at collecting a lot of useless stuff and, and throwing it at you. It. <laughs> and tell you. I, I would love, yeah, I would love to get my hands on the aircraft records under the control of the FBI. I, I if these planes were in any way uh, had work performed on them. It would it would it would be indicated in, in, in these records. Gotcha. And uh, you know, I spoke to the research and development in the years before nine eleven, and I've occasionally wondered, you know, had these four aircraft themselves been relied upon for this research and development? Because as I said, at least I'm aware of at least one United Airlines uh, aircraft that was uh, used in such a way before just before nine eleven. Well, what about the substitution of a civilian aircraft for a, a military? Uh, a capable 
aircraft of similar dimensions that might have been repainted. This is a theory that's out here. Um, yeah, that's, that, that tends to speak to the Operation Northwoods plane swapping that was uh, uh, described once upon a time. Uh, as I mentioned, I, I don't think that was necessary in this case. I think that the, the commercial aviation uh, airline planes, the 757, 767s, uh, contained all of the capability to do what was observed. Except going 500 miles an hour at essentially sea level, right? You described yeah, that as a problem. That's an interesting question. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I tend to think that these planes were, how shall I say, um, over-engineered beyond specs. So even though the, the specifications indicated uh, potential failure at certain airspeeds in certain atmospheric environments, I tend to think that the planes were capable of surviving beyond those specifications for long enough to do what was observed. Uh, that day, for example, September 11th, uh, the air humidity, the relative air humidity was very low. Hmm. The, uh, there were very little winds that day. Uh, but then again, who knows, ultimately. But I've seen some very up-close images of 175 as, as it approached Trade Center, too. And it does seem to, to very much contain the exact uh, uh, kinds of so-called paint jobs contained by other planes of the United Fleet. It looked exactly like a, a United 767. Well, that's interesting you say that because we have several witnesses who said they saw a gray plane. And some say, well, that's just because you're underneath it in a silhouetted uh, against the sky. Uh, what, what do you say about that? Yeah, the United uh, paint jobs, uh, so to speak, uh, of their fleets at that time were of a, a dark gray color. And also as United 175 approached uh, Trade Center 2 for uh, several seconds, it flew underneath the smoke cover uh, coming from Trade Center 1 while it was afire. And it darkened even more so the appearance of the plane in just those few seconds before impact. So it might, you know, explain what was observed by some to be a very unusually dark uh, aircraft w without markings. Mm -hmm. Did you look uh, at... I'm, I'm, I'm simply uh, guesstimating. Did you look at the... Uh the Dave Von Kleist uh, journalistic uh, review of the pod on the uh, right side of the plane that hit the uh, WTC2? Yeah, I, I've, I'm aware of those uh, claims. Um, I, I think what was observed was just a... Um, the result of just certain lighting, certain angles, certain uh, with respect to the sun sh sunlight and um, and the architecture of the aircraft. Uh, yeah, I, I don't know how else to, to, to say this uh, without getting too complicated, but I, I think it was just uh, the result of uh, several simultaneous factors, you know, the, the angle of the aircraft with respect to the sunlight and the the shade provided by the smoke cover in those seconds when some of those photographs were recorded. Uh, it appears to be, in my humble opinion, I mean, just nothing more than the aircraft architecture okay. rather than some unusual device that was 
there for, you know, some reason. Um, why such a, vi- a device needed to be there and what it could possibly have achieved is uh, another question. Yeah. Okay, thanks. One I don't speculate about too much. <laughs> okay, Gail? Were explosive used in the plane attacks? Well, that's a simple question. Uh, forgive me, I'm sorry, I missed the first part. Were explosives used in the plane attacks? That's an interesting juxtaposition of that question. I'm not sure they were necessary, but I do have to confess, the uh, Naude brother video of 11 going into Trade Center 1, in just those very few milliseconds right before impact, there does seem to be a flash anomaly uh, that I can't explain, others can't explain. And I've seen the video slowed down and, and enhanced, and there does some, seem to be some sort of uh, light phenomenon, flash anomaly, almost simultaneous with impact. And I know that there are other videos of uh, 175 going into Trade Center 2 that seems to uh, contain uh, similar phenomenon. Uh, I don't know what the explanations for those are. Um, I know that I do know that in the, the nose of these aircraft are contained uh, a substantial amount of electronics I don't know if that would explain what was observed. Uh, I, I, we may never know. Or static electricity, as claimed by some. Um, and you're, you had a career in statics. Uh, what, yes. Do you have a way to tie that together? Yeah, that, this, this sounds like some Tesla-like phenomenon that uh, may be beyond my capability. But, okay. yeah, I mean, that, that certainly could uh, be one explanation. Um, it, it, it's 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 really hard to know without experiments. We, uh, we, these uh, events would have to be reproduced under, you know, laboratory conditions. I suppose to really uh, get anywhere with this uh, answers to this this question. Uh huh. Good, Gail. Is there another question? Yes. Testing aircraft being flown remotely has existed for some time. How do ground pilots drone aircraft? How do pilots? How drone, how do drone, ground, droned aircraft. I don't understand yes. that. How do ground pilots, so pilots that are on the ground, how do they maybe control the droned aircraft? Oh, there you go. Okay, that, that makes sense mm-hmm. now. Well, yeah, the, the military has such capabilities with their attack drones that they deploy, uh, oddly enough, from uh, which, which they control, oddly enough, from Las Vegas, Nevada, where I am today, uh, Nellis Air Force Base. Uh, some of those drone attack flights were conducted under the control of operators here. Prior um, to 9-11? But pursuant to 9-11, I think with respect to a desire to hit a target um, covertly, I, I still think that the, the most accurate means, the most reliable means would be under autopilot control, under GPS guidance. I think uh, introducing uh, a human operator into the equation uh, uh, opens up too many opportunities for uh, failure. Well, also, uh, Ricky DeSantis was on the, uh, he's a 9-11 survivor. Um, He was on the show uh, a few months ago and and, and took photos of, of, of bombers from 1940s, 
and 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 well after that were outfitted with bombs and flown remotely they didn't have gps at the time of course but they had the capability to remotely control an aircraft even back then yes the uh, nazi germany for example i think late in world war ii were launching and successfully so uh remotely guided well not even remotely guided uh weaponry uh they, they these uh weapons contained uh inertial reference system mechanisms, I believe, that allowed them to travel relatively accurately to targets that were hundreds of miles away. And I think uh, some of those targets included London, England, and other cities in England. And uh, they were able to, to, to strike these cities from hundreds of miles away, just relying on these uh, electromechanical devices that were contained therein. Hmm. Okay, I didn't know about that one. Hmm. That's important. Okay. The X-Files spinoff show, The Lone Gunman, in their pilot episode, they have a commercial airliner hijacked and flown into the World Trade Center. The episode in May of 2001. Is that exactly how it went? Have you seen the show? Yes. That episode, oddly enough, speaks directly to the, the kind of potential we are addressing today. That show aired about six months before 9-11, and I, I, I have uh, no explanation for it. It's just a remarkable coincidence that that subject matter was broadcast on national TV only six months prior to the event. But it speaks directly to the kind of technology that was available circa 2001, uh, the, re the remote intervention of... Uh, bad actors, shall we say, in order to carry out activities uh, that facilitated foreign policy objectives. Maybe they do that kind of thing so that people who do research like you can be countered by saying, oh, he must have just watched the X-Files and coming up with this conspiracy theory. Yeah, the... Uh, so, uh, Conspiracy theories slash uh, misinformation, which in my humble opinion is nothing but inconvenient facts for the authorities. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Who knows? Um, but it's amazing how sometimes pursuant to such events, these kinds of uh, uh, media wind up broadcast similar. Similarly, I think, uh, with respect to the OKC, the OKC bombing, I think the brother of the governor of Oklahoma circa that time had written a novel about a, a similar event to the OKC bombing. And the, the bad actor in the novel was named Tom McVeigh, hmm. comparable to the uh, accused being named Tim McVeigh. Fascinating. What a coincidence. That anomaly was raised on uh, local television in Oklahoma City sometime after the event. I think the video copy is even still on YouTube to this day. Yeah. So they wow. knew who their Patsy was six months earlier than OKC. For those of you who don't yes. know, um, we had on the show uh, a month or so ago, uh, uh, Mr. Vanden Neuenhoff. What's his first name, Gail? Oh, um... 
Holland. Oh, dear. Holland. Uh, he's Holland, the uh, producer of A Noble Lie, the documentary about the Oklahoma City bombing. It was an incredible show. So look for that on our website, richardgage911.org. Is there another question? There is. So the next one is, do you have an opinion on the ideas proposed by Rebecca Roth, namely that the original flights were diverted and replaced with similar aircraft and the real planes landed at the Offit or OFFIT Air Force Base? I don't know if that's Offit. I wonder if that's a typo. Um, I think it is. Moffat. Moffat. Okay. Is that right? Uh, go ahead. Take your best shot at this one. Yeah, this seems to harken back to the uh, Operation Northwoods plane swapping scenarios. Um, Again, I I don't think there was a need for it. And it seems such scenarios, they seem to unnecessarily complicate any uh, suspected covert operation as, for example, as to what to do with these passengers who are transported against their will to other remote locations. You know, what is to be done with them? thereafter in that case for example um again I, such scenarios seem to unnecessarily complicate any operation that we suspect may have unfolded mm-hmm. and all of the technology and capability i think were there and contained within the flights that were uh present in the skies that day on, on their own well if that's swapping and so on okay if that's true uh, then our, our last and final question. Well, I guess that's redundant. Our next and final question <laughs> uh, addresses a, a specific question uh, that arises necessarily. Uh, and then we'll we'll have to let our guest go. I know he's got to jump to another obligation. Um, go ahead, Gil. All right. Remote control of the planes would entail that the pilots of the, these planes were taken out of the equation. What happened to the pilots of these passenger planes as the planes were flown by remote? Whoa. That's a good question. And um, one I'm still trying to address to this day, uh, it does seem to uh, require and necessitate the need for a loss of communications somehow uh, coupled with the remote uh, covert remote control capabilities um so i'm still looking into this you know how could the pilots have been completely removed from the equation so to speak to allow for what we suspect may have happened remotely um and hopefully sooner than later i can find answers but that that is a uh a valid question yeah it sure is um and the same with the passengers of course if these are the planes that actually took off uh, where are those passengers? Uh, where are the pilots? Did they end up in in the um, in the building as alleged? Or I was able to uh, via email communicate with the one of the coroners, I believe it was who was located in New York City. He authored a book uh, subsequent to nine eleven, and um, I sent an email to him and I asked him how long it took for him to identify, for example, all of the hijackers. And um, he did get back to me. He, he, he mentioned uh, non-specifically, uh, not very long, I believe, were the words he used. And it was a book entitled Who They Were. So the listeners are uh, invited to go have a look at that to perhaps shed light on 
the question uh, raised here, but uh, hmm. that, that's the identifications of remains, at least pursuant to New York City, uh, were performed by local authorities, to my knowledge. The ones at the Pentagon in Flight 93, I believe, were carried out by the uh, a division of the U.S. Army. Hmm. Fascinating. Well, Aiden, uh, thank you. This has been an incredible interview. And and finally, we've got our 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 cell phone old time technology working. Thank God for that. Uh, and uh, yeah, really, really very sorry about the earlier half of the show. I guess the, we we couldn't overcome uh-huh. the delay. Yeah, that was that was interesting. I hadn't seen a thirty second delay before. I was fascinating that was major <laughs> yeah we have to do a, a declassifying a document on that uh uh also <laughs> but um where can people find out more about your work and uh any final thoughts certainly uh yeah once again uh declassifying 911 uh barnes and noble amazon uh as well journal of 911 studies i've done uh Three studies, uh, one on the flight technology, one on the uh, observed flight performance of 175, and also one about the uh, activity of the 9-11 flight transponders and the technology pursuant to that. Mm-hmm. And so this is at Journal of 911studies.org, I think it is. Journal of 911studies.org. You can find Aiden Monahan's work there. And his book at Amazon.com, Declassifying 9-11. Uh, Aiden, incredible. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we'll let you go and jump to your next obligation. And Thanks, Aiden. Thank you both for having me. Uh, you bet. Anytime. Yeah. Thanks so much. And there he goes. There's Aiden. There he goes. <laughs> and uh, Gail, thank you for helping me. And, You're um, welcome. If you haven't heard enough from Gail, and I never do. Take this in. Thank you for joining us on yet another informative and soul-stirring episode of Richard Gage 9-11 Unleashed. We'll be on the air again next week with another very special guest in the 9-11 Truth Movement and beyond. Visit us at richardgage911.org where you can find our schedule, learn about the WTC evidence, and of course, sign up for our emails and support us. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe.